0: Welcome back to Pathways Perspectives, the podcast from Development Pathways. We're your hosts. My name is Bain And my name is Clara. We hope everyone is keeping safe amid all that's going on with COVID-19. At Pathways Perspectives, we are interested in learning about the nuances of social protection. Each episode will be an expert-on-expert expert conversation, a discussion between practitioners on a variety of topics, such as cash transfers, gender, and financial inclusion. This month, Yolanda Wright, Director of Poverty Reduction, Climate Resilience, Gender Equality and Inclusion at Save the Children, and Nicholas Freeland, a Social Policy Specialist and Development Pathways Associate, discussed the importance of investing in child benefits during and after COVID-19. This leads to questions such as, how do governments invest in child benefits? When should they begin investing in children? How can humanitarian donors support the development of these systems? Yolanda and Nicholas will discuss these questions and more. COVID 19 will have lasting impacts on many segments of society. To address this, we need innovative and sustainable solutions, ones that provide support and build resilience in communities. So sit back, relax, grab your cup of coffee, and enjoy this episode.
1: Um, I'm excited to be talking about universal child benefits um, because I think it's a really exciting thing that the world should be thinking about at this time.
2: Yeah, I know this is something that you have to um, push quite extensively. So why don't you begin, imagine that we're in the elevator and you've only got two minutes to convince me um, on universal child benefits.
1: Thank you. Okay, I will. Um, Well, basically, I think COVID has shown the whole world how vulnerable we are as a society. And we've seen that... um, Countries that have social protection systems in place, and by that I mean unemployment benefit, pension systems, uh, sick benefits and child benefits, they're able to better protect their citizens when shocks such as the COVID crisis happen because they've got already automated ways to quickly reach people in need. And what I think really um, COVID has shown us and what I think the climate crisis behooves us to do is to think about how do we put in place those efficient and effective systems that reach more more people and particularly more of the world's vulnerable people. And obviously, as you'd expect for someone who works to save the children, I'm particularly focusing on the vulnerable age of life that is childhood. And we know so well that um, children from, from in fact, from, from being in the womb, you know, from the pregnancy of their mother through to their first two years of life are really particularly vulnerable to poverty, because in that period, malnutrition can have a lifelong impact on them. But actually, the whole of childhood is such an important time. And if we can invest in children in their in those early years um, ensure that they are well nourished have the education they need are protected um you know a country can invest really in their long-term future those those children will grow up to be productive and healthy adults and what we're seeing now is there's a huge humanitarian caseload already in the world even before covid and the humanitarian system is creaking at the seams we're not able to meet all the needs and it's not the most effective and efficient way to meet those needs um you know it's quite expensive to suddenly drop in with a big humanitarian effort to find the most vulnerable families and to set up systems to reach them effectively and efficiently and um What I'd love to see in this day and age when we have so much potential globally to use digitization, to use mobile phones that have such a wide reach nowadays, we should be able to automate systems much more effectively to reach many, many more people simply and efficiently. And even if initially governments can only afford a very low monthly payment for a child benefit, for example, we could use that system once people are registered, once people have their bank details or their mobile banking details registered, very quickly and efficiently, extra payments could go go out for a shock such as COVID or to help people prepare for a drought. And it could prevent them from doing things like having to sell assets, um, which are often very unpro- unproductive things to do in the short term and mean that in the long term, they're kind of impacting their livelihoods and their ability to cope. So that's my elevator pitch. Um, I think that it's uh, a sensible thing to do. Obviously, not right for every country right now. And we can talk about that. But I think it's important to have a vision. <laughs> and that's the vision.
2: Great. Yeah, no, lucky it was a nice tool building and we stopped at every floor so um, we got through the elevator pitch um yeah no you made a a number of very good points there um one around the the kind of shock responsiveness of having systems in place um secondly around the value of the investment um in children and um thirdly about how you how you start this process i think in in different countries um and maybe we could just pick up on those i think first of all on the investment you know there's, there's clearly a a moral case for for investing in in children um but i think there's also quite a strong economic case as well and i think particularly in the context of of um bouncing back after covid um we we really should be trying to push the the value of the investment um in children and it was something that um an exercise we did in bangladesh um <laughs> a couple of years ago, we, we looked at the benefits of investing in a, in a universal um, child benefit for, for all under fives. And it was very significant, um, you know, in terms of the reduced maternal mortality, in terms of reduced uh, low birth weight, in terms of um, savings for, for treatment um, of diseases later on, in terms of reducing stunting, um, we, we showed a benefit of nearly three percent of GDP. Um, and that's a, a cost-benefit ratio of 1.68, which is more than you get from most infrastructure investment projects. So as we come out of, of COVID, this represents a really good return for, for governments who do invest in this. So I think it's something that we, we really need to be pushing now. And of course, you get a much, um, you get a much bigger multiplier effect um, investing in cash transfers to households than you do through major infrastructure investments. So I think there's a a very strong uh, economic case as well. Um, But clearly, the other point you made is is that as we come out of COVID, countries are are going to be stretched. They're going to have had to have spent a lot of money on response. How are we going to encourage these these countries to start with, with child benefits when they may not have anything in place or they only have rudimentary? Poverty targeted systems in place. How how do you think we 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 should go around this process of introducing programs and 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 trying to make it affordable um, at the beginning, in the expectation that the investment will come later on?
1: Thanks. I agree with you. I think um, you know. Governments will be stretched, budgets will be very stretched. But I think that the arguments that you make about the economic case should be made. And I think that um, very few governments are now considering austerity as an immediate response to COVID. I think they are all or most of them are considering how to invest. And I think we do need to make the case for investing in recovery at right at that level of, of investing in families and children. And along with other investments, I'm not saying this should be the only thing. And, and one thing that's important to say is cash transfers, whether they're electronic um, or to mobile phones, etc. They are very, very important. I think they're foundational, but they aren't um, sufficient. You do need other things in place. So a family, if it gets cash, but there's no clinic, still can't get their child immunised. Um, if they get cash, but there's no schools available or open, they still can't improve their children's education. So I don't think it's an either or, you know, don't invest in building schools, just invest in cash. I think it's it's both. Um, for governments that are worried about how on earth to afford it. I think there's different ways um, to sort of look at the costs. And there's been, um, you know, different calculations done for different countries, you can start with a much smaller categorical group. So you could start with just looking at pregnant women and children up to the age of two, rather than trying to start with a whole benefit all the way up to the children at um, 18, which is obviously a much larger group of the population. Um, You could also consider starting with some of the poorest or most affected regions of a country. So you might find some Certain places and certain urban areas are really struggling to recover. COVID certainly hit a lot of the informal economy in in the urban sectors, which often aren't so affected by poverty normally. Or it might be more um, certain regions where we know there's like high levels of child poverty or high levels of stunting. That's basically one of the effects of malnutrition in children that has a lifelong impact on them.
2: Yeah, so um, there's the kind of demographic option of limiting yourself to the number of the, to the number of years that you cover initially. Um, I think Thailand began with just up to the age of one year, um, and then at the other end of the scale, we've seen in South Africa how it expanded um, from up to seven years to nine years to eleven years to fourteen years, eighteen now, and and talk about expanding it still further up to twenty three. So I think that would be certainly one option. The G- geographical one, um, for example, focusing on urban areas or, um, you know, in, in Nepal, for example, it began in just one district. In India, it, it, the child grant is universal in some uh, low performing states and, and targeted in others. Um, so, yes, various different options, I think. And um, we can we, we should be encouraging governments to think about how they do that. I think you also mentioned in your in your introductory pitch the that starting may be with a lower value of transfer in the hope that that will, um, that will expand, that will increase over time. The, the other area you mentioned is the value of having these systems in place in order that they can be used for uh, responding to similar shocks or different types of shock in, in the future. Um, and I think um, there are already some examples where, where we've seen um, child benefit programs being used um, for, for for such purposes. Um, I think um, in Nepal, after the 2015 earthquakes, um, there was um, a, a move to make these, um, the child grant universal in the districts that had been affected. And I think even in, in, in the case of COVID, we've seen um, a number of countries who've used their child benefit program as a way to respond, in, in, in particular, I think, South Africa, um, Argentina, uh, Mongolia. Have all increased the value of the of the transfer under the child benefit as a mechanism for responding to, um, to, to COVID. Is is there is there more that, that we can say on that? Are there other examples? Um, what are the what do we what do we need to say about the systems that um, that have to be in place for this kind of shock responsiveness to work?
1: Well I think yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Those are some of the examples that I know as well. You're absolutely right. That um, I think once these systems are in place, they should be and could be used for shock responsiveness. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been proven to be really useful. And in many countries, if you had a universal child benefit system in place, you'd be able to very quickly reach sort of approximately sixty percent of vulnerable households straight away. And if you had a, a universal child benefit and a pension, you'd be reaching a, a really vast majority of vulnerable households quite quickly. Um, so I think the key things that you need in place are are a sort of transfer system that's efficient and effective. And I do think that electronic systems are a good way to go where where possible. And I know there's a digital divide. um, And so not everybody would be able to do it. But that digital divide is closing. And there may be more that we can do to close the gap and particularly close the gap for women. So... um, you know, I would love to see more and more women getting access to mobile phones, not just for payments of, of child benefits, but for lots of other reasons as well. You know, even livelihoods impacts, um, you know, people can find out what is the price of, of rice in the next door town? Is it cheaper? Is it more expensive? You know, is it worth me going to sell my aubergines uh, nearby because the price is higher than in my village, etc. Plus all the abilities to report um, issues, to connect, you know, there's so many benefits um, of being sort of in integrated into mobile phone system, but also into banking, because we know that poor people often have to borrow. So when there's a shock, normally, often people, you know, depend on their social networks and borrow from either family and friends or from informal money lenders at very high rates. And I think, you know, the benefit of just even integrating people into the formal banking sector would be a great benefit. But then the ability for government, should they have available cash to support families in a disaster, they could use the systems as well. And, and I, this is a bit of a breaking the system a bit, but, you know, I've been working in the humanitarian sector for the last four or five years. And, you know, I I do think we should be challenging um, humanitarian donors to say if governments have these systems in place and you've checked it out and you're comfortable with the process and the administration, why not give some of the donor responses through government systems as well? Um, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know not been done, but I think it's something we should be thinking about um, where governments have those systems in place. And we know there's been a massive drought and we can use household expenditure surveys, etc., to, to know that, you know, their incomes have dropped significantly and we need to give them a supplement to their income. You know, you should be able to use those automated systems to trigger payments to, to people in that region. It could even be linked to insurance systems, right, that, that work on triggers. So I think there's a long way to go there that hasn't been done yet, but it's not beyond the realms of imagination to think that this could be possible.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, and I think it works both ways, in fact, because I think there are a number of countries where it's the um, it's the humanitarian actors who've been collecting a lot of the data about households and who've been uh, piloting more innovative delivery systems. And, and really, that needs to be seen from a perspective of using that to strengthen the government systems rather than to strengthen the humanitarian actors um, systems. So I I, I quite agree.
1: I didn't mention that, you know, Save the Children. And UNICEF brought out um, a study recently that showed that um, between 90 and 117 million more children might fall into poverty in 2020 as a result of COVID. I mean, it's a kind of unprecedented, people use the word unprecedented all the time, I'm so sorry, but an unprecedented increase in in child poverty really, um, you know, putting at risk the progress of the last uh, couple of decades, which is which is really worrying. And I think with this unprecedented rise in poverty, we do need an unprecedented attempted policy response. And I think that we have already seen it. Ugo Gentilini um, at the World Bank has been tracking the global expansion of social protection responses to COVID. Um, But some of them are one off payments, right? Or Um, you know, just very short term. And I think that what the world really needs is us to kind of raise our game and to really look to the future, recognising the huge risks on the horizon of the climate crisis. Sadly, we're not looking likely to be able to contain global warming below 1.5 degrees. And so we know that with every 0.1 of a degree of increase globally, that's going to be um, increasing risks to all of us, but particularly to vulnerable groups like children. And we need to be rapidly thinking about efficient and effective systems to support vulnerable people while also dealing with the root causes of climate change. And I just I don't see that the humanitarian system scaling up is the right answer. It's expensive. It's short term. You know, it should be. It has to be there, but we we need to be using the humanitarian only where the humanitarian system alone can can cope. And in all other countries where there is scope to start setting up social protection systems more that are more comprehensive, we should be doing that. And obviously, on this podcast, I'm talking about child benefits as a starting point. But you know, sort of universal systems that reach as many of the population as possible, I think are the other way forward. We've seen so many flaws in targeted systems. They really do risk leaving people behind. And it would be much better to have universal systems and then use tax to claw back the benefits effectively that are given to the richer members of society. Because, of course, hopefully the, you know, you worry about giving money to people who don't need it. Well, if you set up a tax system, the tax system sort of effectively brings it back to you. But by by having attempts to target people, we've seen so many massive errors
2: no, I, I completely agree, um, Yolanda. I mean, I, I think that what, what we, we have to try to persuade governments to see social protection not as being a, a response to current immediate poverty, but rather as a mechanism to build resilience in its population. And to build resilience, we can't pick and choose who, who deserve it, who need it right now. We have to invest in general in the citizens. Of the, of the country. So these programs have to be inclusive. Um, they have to be universal where that's possible. And we, you know, as we've been saying today, there are many justifications for focusing that initially on the next generation, on the, the children being born now who are going to have to face these changes as they increase over, over the next um, decades. So um, to me, there's um, every justification in our for universal child benefits um, as an overriding response to the, the problems that, that COVID has brought to light.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Pathways Perspectives. Let us know what you think. Share your comments with us on social media about how we should be adapting social protection systems to a COVID-19 world. Watch this space and head to our website for more on our work. You can find blogs, webinars, and future podcast episodes at developmentpathways.co.uk.